Welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast, the nature-based show hosted by me, Jack Perks. Each week I'm joined by a guest from the world of wildlife television, art and science. We take a light-hearted look into what makes these people tick and connect with the natural world so strongly, with new episodes out every Tuesday. This week I have Megan McCubbin, who is a zoologist, conservationist, photographer and recent addition to the Springwatch presenting team. We talk about what it's like joining the Watchers, her wildlife photography and zoological work, along with setting up the Self-Isolation Bird Club. Well, thanks for joining me, Megan. Thank you so much for having me. No worries. Well, so you're a zoologist and I wondered, have you got a group of animals that particularly interest you? Because zoologist is such a broad term. And, you know, obviously you like lots of animals, but I wondered if there was a particular group that you're like, they are absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I mean, by lots of different groups. And every time I find out more information, I think that group changes quite frequently because I get new favourites all the time. But I guess kind of the area that I have most experience in is kind of predatory behaviour and kind of social intelligence of different okay. animals. So I've been really lucky to kind of work a lot with the illegal wildlife trade and with wildlife rehabilitation, particularly of big predators. Um, so big cats from X circus I've worked with bears from the bear bile industry I've researched sharks so these kind of big megafauna predators I guess is what I've had most hands-on experience but for me it's the kind of the little scientific gems about physiology everything that you know appeals to me and gets me excited as well yeah I think it, it's easy to get kind of caught up in in the swept of big predators isn't it enough I'm a champion of the little guys but you yeah. know if it's a big big scary animal with teeth you can't help but be fascinated can you no, I think they've just got this allure, really, that you're kind of just drawn into kind of wanting to understand them. But no, I, I am also a very big champion of the little guys, more and more, I have to say. And um, yeah, I'm equally as excited by them as anything else. I guess as well with the UK, because we don't have anything big and scary with teeth, or not not really. It is fa- quite fascinating when you do look abroad. I think people live with these animals, you know, these, these big, scary stuff. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You know, it makes us kind of, when we're kind of complaining about human wildlife complex, you know, what we don't come up with lions and hyenas every day. So, not normally, no. No, no not, not, <laughs> no, very, very on the, on the odd occasion. <laughs> yeah, no, so we, you know, we really have no big wildlife complex to, you know, in my opinion anyway. Um, you know, we do have shark, quite a lot of sharks around UK waters, which a lot of people don't really appreciate or understand very much but we get up to about 40 different species some which are here all year long some which kind of come and go and so you know our oceans are fantastic places and often overlooked as well have you done any work with with uk sharks i was talking to sarah roberts i think you know sarah actually don't you yeah, and we, yeah. we did uh, we did a blue shark trip together uh, a few of us not just me it was a few of lizzie daly and a few other kind of characters and we, we tried to get blue sharks off uh, pembrokeshire unfortunately we didn't see any but I remain hopeful to get some at, at some point because there's, like you said, there's 40 odd species, not just um, blues, makos. I'm not sure if I'd want to see a mako. That might, my heart really? might. Well, I'd, I'd like to see one, but not <laughs> not too close. Oh, I'd love it. I'd absolutely love it. No, I mean, I've recently been working on a project around UK sharks. So <sighs> I've just been filming for a new series, which is coming out hopefully in the spring for CBBC. Um, my role in my episode of the series is to explore kind of the problems with shark persecution and how the UK actually has a direct role in that. Yeah. So we were filming with blue sharks and um, yeah, it was it was pretty amazing. Yeah, we, we had a chap called Matt Briley on who I don't, I don't, I don't know if you know him, but he, he's been doing a lot of work with campaigning for that. So I didn't realise the extent of the problem in the UK with with sharks Like we've almost created a fishery for them by accident, haven't we? With the whole, oh, I remember this correctly now, like you, you can't 
just bring the fins you have to bring the whole shark back so then that's encouraging people to catch sharks and obviously that's not good either so it's not a great situation yeah you have to land them and i mean you know the hot topic with sharks is always finning um, and that is, you know, a, a huge issue and one that, you know, in the UK, we can bring up to 20 kilograms of shark fin in for personal allowance, which is shocking. But there are other, you know, bigger potentially issues facing sharks. You know, shark meat trade is really big, you know, and also, you know, the trawlers, bycatch is also a huge problem. Recreational fishing in some areas is a huge problem, particularly for sensitive species like scalloped hammerhead and greater hammerhead. So, yeah, there's lots of different facets and pressures facing these animals which is you know causing the decline which is you know really rubbish to see yeah they're such a charismatic creature aren't they no one wants to see them uh, go go down you you mentioned uh, earlier about the, the beer barn i want to talk about that because i think that's one of the first films that you did for tv wasn't it and that was undercover tourist and for those that don't know then so what what is beer bile like what is the the trade and you know why is it well i say why is it a problem it should be fairly obvious why it's a problem but what what is it and why is it an issue so um, the bear bile industry is something which is kind of predominant in areas of Asia. So in particular, China, Vietnam and Laos are the kind of the three countries that really kind of invest in it, I suppose. And um, what happens is, depending on the country, there's slightly different regulate, slightly different kind of practices, I suppose, depending on where you are. Um, but either kind of the bears are caught for the wild, from the wild if you're in Vietnam or Laos, or they are bred if you're in China, because for some reason, breeding has been unsuccessful in captivity in Laos and uh, Vietnam but for some reason China have been able to do it which is interesting um, in yeah. these farms um, and and when we're talking about bears we're typically you know in this situation typically talking about Asiatic black bears sometimes Tibetan browns and sun bears too but predominantly Asiatic black bears and they're the most beautiful things I think Mickey Mouse was kind of designed around them because they've got these gorgeous you know round ears and this moon crescent on their chest you know they're declining massively from their ranges but you know, and, and more people have them in their kitchens and there are in the wild. So they're kept in these awful conditions. Like I've never seen anything like it, you know, often in cages that are so small that they're unable to turn around and they, you know, can live up to 30 years. Um, and they are just constantly treading on, you know, the bars. So their pads are all ripped up and, you know, sore. Um, they're biting on the bars, stereotypic behavior because they're stressed, they're pacing. They're kind of fed this antibiotic sludge because, of the bear bile extraction process and this is exactly why they're being kept is to extract bear bile and that's a kind of bile that's held in the gallbladder which helps it's like a digestive fluid but it's kind of a traditional chinese medicine to extract it and for kind of men to drink it in vodka for an aphrodisiac uh, also to rub it on joints that are causing some kind of pain because unfortunately it has been proven that bear bile does have anti-inflammatory properties however uh, there are better plant synthetic alternatives yeah it's not like the rhino horn situation where it's just keratin and there's there's nothing nothing there but obviously you know take a paracetamol don't don't hurt a bear is the preferred right. option exactly that and you know in, in vietnam and laos the whole thing is totally illegal but it is expensive to keep a bear so you know you're not going to keep a bear and kind of purchase the cheap antibiotics to keep it from getting in, infected in its stomach because you know the process of extraction is really awful you know either the bear has a catheter in its stomach the entire time in a bag which is held around like this harness so the bile is constantly dripping out into this bag or you know when the bile is in demand and the customer turns up you know the, the farmer goes and kind of lies under and kind of basically keeps injecting you know putting needles up into the abdomen of the bear and it's incredibly painful and incredibly damaging process um, you know for the psychology of the bear and you know for its physical health as well and um 
yeah it's really sad so i went and actually volunteered with animals asia which are a charity i absolutely adore um in china and i spent three three to four months working there um helping to rehabilitate the bears and my job was like a behavioral specialist was to kind of figure out how i could make their environment a little bit better um you know they had the most amazing enclosures because these bears unfortunately can never be put back into the wild because of the torment that they've had um so yeah they're kept in these enclosures but they but they are the most magnificent kind of enclosures that you could wish for they are huge and they've got the most amazing enrichment program so they're incredibly lucky bears to you know have had the veterinary treatment and the space that they have now and um yeah so from that point i came home and i was really affected by the story i didn't actually get to go to a farm in china but then i got contacted by a friend of mine who worked at bbc telling me about the series and one of their stories had actually fallen through um and did i have any ideas about what, what they could cover and i said well i've just got back from china why don't we go out and do bears so um before i knew it we were out in vietnam filming in the farms and going undercover which was it was yeah. by chance really then yeah yeah it was you know it, through kind of conversations and um, kind of pitching ideas and you know suggestions and you know I never went into it wanting to be like a presenter necessarily I wanted to kind of help with the storytelling and be in whatever position I could be to help where I'm best suited and it kind of just happened naturally which has been really fun. It must have been quite hard I guess because you know you obviously love animals and you're going to be em empathetic towards them so was it hard to kind of to keep it in or, or do you can you not help it you just kind of let the emotions out when you when you see these horrific conditions? It is hard. It is definitely hard. You know, I've, I've done quite a few different undercover pieces here and there now, and they are challenging, definitely. You know, I think when you're in it and you're kind of confronted with pretty, a pretty nasty sight, like the bears in the cages, or, you know, I've worked in Cyprus and Malta with a songbird slaughter. And when you see things like that, I mean, I'm angry. I'm really angry and disappointed, but also I'm quite numb to it because for me, I'm there to do a job and I want to you know expose it and you know so for me I kind of take it all in and I can deal with it when I get back um on a kind of a personal level because yes. I, it's more important to do it. but it is it is hard you know and those are some of the images and some of the individuals and things that I've seen you know will haunt me for a very long time because it isn't the nicest of sites for sure no definitely not I mean I I've seen some of this stuff with the the, the dog trade in, in China and it, it breaks my heart. I just can't. It's one of those things I know you should watch it, but I can't make my way through the videos because it's pretty, uh, pretty soul destroying. And then I've got my dog sat next to me looking up at me and I'm like, oh, my God, can't, yeah. uh, can't deal with it. It's not it's not great. And you you recently joined the the Springwatch team. So so what was that like? Like kind of I guess it's uh, a fraternity now. It's what, you know, the biggest nature show in, in the UK. So joining that must have been been amazing. Oh, so much fun. It is, you know, <laughs> it's a real big family and full of people who are really excited by, you know, the latest science and science communication to bring it out to kind of the nation. And I think like to join this year has been really special because it has been such a hard year with lockdown and COVID. Everyone's been in, you know, really difficult situations facing this crisis. So to join the team now at a kind of a poignant time when you know the watches are still able to go out which is a brilliant technical feat because we're all doing it from different locations everyone's not in one hub anymore we're all dotted around the country it is really kind of special for me because it's nice to be able to provide people with a little bit of kind of escapism into the natural world and they can hopefully you know forget about the news headlines forget about you know the awful things that have probably come out that day it's based on you know what the history has been like the last kind of few months yeah kind of lose themselves in the natural world which really helps on mental health so yeah it's a lot of fun you know to, 
finding out new things, talking to the scientists and conveying them. It's been, uh, I mean, I, I don't know what the viewing figures have been like, but it seems to have worked really well. Like it, it was, I remember, because I, I do the odd thing for the watches here and there, and remember they, they weren't really sure how it was going to work and if people would take to the new format. And, and it seems, if anything, to be, I don't want to say better because that's not the right way of putting it, but it's worked really well, like kind of going to the different presenters and seeing what they've been doing and the, the mindful moments, that kind of nice serene couple of minutes. Um, the whole format seems to be going going pretty, pretty good. Yeah, I think so. I think people responded really well, which is really lovely. Um, you know, everyone's been incredibly welcoming and loving the new format, as you say. I think it's nice because everyone gets like a snapshot of what's going on around the UK because we're all isolated in our little kind of very local areas. Yeah. We get to local areas really well which is really great because we're seeing more of what's on our doorstep but it is nice to be able to kind of be transported to Wales or Scotland or you know wherever the films are just to get an idea of actually you know what does this period of time look like in all these places yeah I guess as well it shows that it's happening everywhere because you are you know if you are in your little local bubble your mind doesn't tend to expand too much I suppose but then it's like oh actually it's happening in that little village in Scotland or it's happening in, in that place in Wales or whatever so it is a it's a countrywide thing that's happening. Exactly. I think there's like a comfort in that in a weird yeah. way. You know, whilst we're all disconnected, it's nice to know that everyone is connected with like a kind of a shared passion for wildlife, whether that's kind of a renewed thing and you're a seasoned kind of wildlife veteran or whether maybe it's something entirely different and new. Um, so yeah, it, whilst we're all disconnected, I think, you know, we're kind of connecting over a new love for the environment, I suppose. Yeah, and that nicely segues into my next uh, question, which is the Self-Isolation Bird Club. So you obviously uh, set that up with with Chris, which I'll, I'll come on to in a second. But um, what was the response like from that? Because, again, it's kind of it's in a similar vein to Spring Watch, but it's more with social media and you're kind of connecting with lots of people on a, on a local level, aren't you? Well, nationally, not local, but you know, people on the ground, I guess, is the best way to put it. Yeah, I mean, it was um, something unexpected for everyone, including Chris and myself. Yeah. Um, because we didn't, you know, ever anticipate to kind of really create the self-isolating bird club. It almost happened by accident, to be honest. I remember kind of, because I moved in with Chris at the start of the first lockdown in March, just so we could continue to work together um, on, on various projects. And I remember kind of waking up in the morning and he was, you know, it was quite early and he was sat in a patch of celandines and I looked out the window into the garden. He was, you know, had his phone up and he was chatting away and I thought, it's a bit odd, but we are talking, <laughs> you know, so anything goes, who knows what could be going on. Um, and he came into the house and I asked him, you know, what are you doing? He said, well, celandines have just come out and, you know, he was thinking about people who might not have access to green space, people who might not have access to gardens. And, you know, what? when he came out and saw those celandines, he put a smile on his face. So he wanted to kind of show people that and try and share a little bit of joy from it. So he started doing these kind of miniature Facebook lives every day, I think twice a day for about four days. And then he had to go away to work. And this is before it was really strict lockdown in March. So we were all kind of staying at home, but it wasn't quite as you know, rigorous. He was still able to go out and work. Um, and he went out to do a job and I took over for the day. And I remember being quite nervous about it, which to me seems silly now, because having done the watches and everything, <laughs> doing yeah. kind of live is kind of, um, you know, is all right. And yes, then we started doing them together. Initially, we were doing them twice a day. And then we decided to do kind of an hour, a whole hour show every day for lockdown. And I think we broadcast every day over the space of at least six or seven weeks, you know, without Saturday, Sundays, whenever we just wanted to kind of bring wildlife to, 
to the nation. So, and actually further afield, it had quite an international audience, which was really quite exciting as well. And we were showing, you know, thing we live in the New Forest, so you know, lots of wildlife. We were showing things that was going on on our doorstep. There was slow mo poodle action. Um, yeah, what more was, do you want? Right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> we don't need anything more than slow mo poodle. We do a whole hour on poodles. Um, and but then we wanted to kind of incorporate like everyone else and what everyone was going through. So. We got live guests in from different places around the world to talk to us about what was going on their doorsteps. And um, yeah, it became this big community and people just started supporting each other, asking wildlife questions on the Facebook page and starting up these really important conversations over a united love for wildlife. It was brilliant to see. There seems to have been during the first lockdown, there was this creative boom from lots of different people in the kind of wildlife media industry. And I guess partly because they maybe lost a lot of work and they had bugger all else to do but it was great to see that and it kept people going you know like this this podcast started then I mean I, I've been meaning to do one for ages and I just thought well I've got sod all else so I might as well start well, this yeah and um there's there's loads of people that did did things it was uh, Nina Constable did did some nice little films and and a few people and they, they they were great to see that and a lot of people have carried on as well it didn't seem to just be a one-off thing which is nice I mean like self-isolation bird club is still still going on strong now isn't it yeah, once a week we still yeah. do it. It's nice to see, you know, all this creativity. I think everyone kind of, you know, jobs started getting cancelled. You know, my diary emptied out. So did everyone else's. You know, yeah. and, you know, you can't travel anymore. Everything kind of had a bit of a hiatus for a while whilst everyone figured out what to do before kind of we realised oh, Zoom's a thing. Um, <laughs> and and I think people really kind of got into new hobbies and new projects, which was brilliant to see. You know, like everyone started learning paint, like learning to paint or learning to play music or doing those brilliant wildlife films which were I know and still are fantastic and they're still being produced and I think everyone's just kind of got a willingness to try and make social media a bit more of a happy place by yeah. sharing the wildlife in the garden because everyone's fed up of the bad news by now I think so it's good it's good to have I mean, I remember when social media was just kind of cat videos and, and bits like that. And, and now it's just... Wait for breakfast, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And it just seems such a negative space now. I mean, Facebook's awful. Probably the worst out of the lot. I mean, Instagram seems relatively happy still, but it, it can be bad. So it is nice to have like glimmers of hope every now and again to remind you that there are some good things happening and, and some good people trying to make a difference as well. Yeah, lots of good things and lots of good people. So it's just... um kind of connecting with them I think and just yeah try and kind of limit the amount you see of the bad stuff as much as yeah possible. yeah definitely I mean you made a you made a bit of a star out of uh, Indy Green he only lives like oh. half an hour from me so he's a, he's yeah. a little little legend like we we went bird watching when would it have been I think just after the first lockdown stopped I didn't realize how young he was like he was only like 15 yeah. I was like oh this is, and he knows so much incredibly passionate young man He's incredible. He's one of my absolute heroes. I met him a few months ago when I went up to, I was looking at hen harriers and then I went over to the Peak District to try and find the bearded vulture when it was still around. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, Indy was kind of the king of the bearded vulture. He yeah, that was his title, him. yeah. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah, pretty much, you know, that's, you know, what he's known on Twitter is now. Um, yeah. But yeah, he, you know, he had so many great sightings of it and I kind of said to him, oh, we need to go and see it and we can film it and we can do something for the South Park Bird Club. 
and um, we got there and we could only be there for a few hours and the, i mean it just started raining really <laughs> badly you know like the painful rain yeah where yeah. just drenched through and it's needles and, and we were at the top of this peak and indy and i were just kind of sat there shivering with binoculars kind of i mean it's not coming out you know we both knew it because the weather was so bad but we just didn't want to give up hope and i, I was so impressed by his knowledge you know his amazing ability to see every bird within a you know, it's superhuman, isn't it? It's superhuman <laughs> skill. I mean, I'm really not brilliant at it at all. Um, and he's, you know, looking at little black dots over there and saying it's this and that's a female. That's a man. And it's just like, how can you even see? I can't even see the black dot, let alone <laughs> be able to sex the species. So, yeah, he's an absolute hero. Definitely. He's a good guy. Uh, I was very careful at the beginning not to, to simply introduce you as, as the stepdaughter of, of Chris Packham. And I wondered, do you get that a lot? Do you get a lot of people just going and here's here's Chris Packham's stepdaughter rather than this is Megan McCubbin. And I wondered, is it something that, not frustrating, that's not the right word, I'm not painting it as a negative thing, but is it something that can, you get a lot or are you kind of happy to be associated with Chris? I, I assume you are. I mean, I, I'm, if you live with him, you probably like him somewhat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you know what I mean? I'm, not, I'm trying to trying to word this in a way that doesn't make it sound like I'm trying to cause a rift because that's not my intention. But, no. um, but yeah, like are you... Would you rather stand on your own two feet or are you, are you kind of happy to be lumped in with Chris, I guess, is the is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I mean, it's actually interesting. I've done a lot of interviews over the last year and you're the first person to actually ask me this. Well, I bet they all wanted to, but they probably couldn't work out a way of making of not of not sounding like an arsehole asking it. And I'm not trying no. to be that arsehole. I'm just trying no. to. Yeah. I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did ask. Um, okay. Yeah. I mean, Chris and I have the best relationship. We get along really well. I think we complement each other, you know its strengths and weaknesses brilliantly because we understand yeah. you've known him forever so you know there's not really a person on the planet that i know better than him and vice versa so i know and i really love working with him because he is so fun and and you know to be able to work with you know going into zoology you know who better to work with than him because he's got the most amazing brain and he'll I'll often sit there and he'll reel off some facts and i'll just be mind blown all over again by his capacity for information so i love working with him i really really do but I do get introduced a lot as Megan McCubbin, Chris Packham's stepdaughter. And it's fine. I don't mind. You know, I'm in my early stages of my career and that's brilliant. And, you know, knowing Chris is a huge privilege. I'm very aware of the privilege that I've had having, you know, the con knowing the people that he knows, you know, around the BBC and also um, the experiences that he's kind of given me by travel and, you know, seeing wildlife up close. I'm very kind of self-aware of that. Um, you know, and, and I'm not naive enough to say that, you know, it hasn't helped open doors because I'm sure it has, you know, I've known the film crews for forever. I've been, you know, two years old running around, you know, on, on set of these things and I've been on the watches sets many times. So I'm very aware that I'm incredibly lucky to have that. And I'm incredibly grateful to him for giving me those opportunities. You know, I think as time goes on, you know, I'll, I'll be doing more stuff on my own and that's certainly happening with Winterwatch that this year it's it's happening uh, you know I'm doing kind of more and more independent things which is great because I have done a lot of independent things it's just the stuff that I'm now more known for has been next to Chris which is great and I love it yeah um, but yeah, I do get introduced a lot as <laughs> no, yeah I can imagine we we had a uh, do you know Lindsay McRae do you know where uh, so we had him on the podcast and we were chatting about this and I asked him the question like is it is it who you know or what you know and he said, to a degree, it's who you know, but you've got to have the skills to back it up. So let's say someone opens a door for you. You've still got to be competent and you've still got to do the job. So I wouldn't let that, you know, I, I wouldn't think that as a negative thing at all, because you're, you're still obviously competent because you're you're still doing things on your own and you're 
being successful at it. So I was really worried about that question. I thought, how am I going to ask this without sounding like a dick? So that's, I'm, I'm glad that you were. Not fine. at all. Good stuff. And also you're a wildlife photographer as well, which it, that's, so my, so my main job is I'm a wildlife cameraman and a, and a wildlife photographer. That's what yeah. kind of keeps, uh, keeps me going. And I was having a look on your Instagram and there were a lot of penguins uh, and a few other bits and bobs. So I wondered, have you got a favorite subject? What do you like photographing? Um, well, penguins are good because yeah. they, you know, you can get up close. They don't, you know, really run away from you. They're not really used to people. So they're kind of a subject that you can really immerse yourself in and you don't have to wait for hours for, you know, a fleeting appearance. Because once you're in a colony, I mean, there's hundreds and thousands and they're everywhere and they're yeah. noisy coming up and pecking your Wellingtons, pecking your camera. So <laughs> actually as a species, I mean, that's quite a useful thing. And it's quite nice to kind of play with um, the exposure with the snow and, you know, that environment is very kind of beautiful and scenic. So they are... I do really enjoy photographing them, but I mean, it's a bit of an easy one in yeah. a way because of- There's nothing wrong with easy, is there? I mean, right. I'm definitely all for making my life easier if, as long as yeah. I can. Definitely, but in terms of a subject, you know, yeah. they're, if, if you're gonna go out to take photos, they're a good kind of species to take good photos of. You can get good photos quite easily. And yeah. um, there's lots of things that I, you know, I'd, I'd love to go and photograph. I mean, I haven't done much kind of in the tropics. I'd love to go, I don't know, and, and photograph some of the smaller, maybe like the dart frogs or something quite. Oh, okay. I've, got, I've got all these visions in my head of images that I'd like to someday take. And I think like planning is part of yeah. photography because I always have an idea before I'm going on a trip or before I start a project, I've always got a very distinct kind of line of what, what I'd like, you know, whether that's a background or um, something creative and I think that's kind of half the battle is knowing what you want so then you're not distracted by everything once you are there in that environment no I, I'd agree with that I'm the same I I, I like to I'm, I'm crap at drawing but I like to sketch out ideas so I'll have a yeah. think like oh this would be a good composition or this would be a good wide angle or something like that and then I'll try and get as close to that as I can and I think that definitely helps your photography rather than just wandering around aimless it's nice to wander around aimlessly I do it often but it's it's nice to have an idea of what you want and then yeah. try and get as close to that as, as possible. Yeah, I think so, definitely. I mean, I don't go as far as to drawing it out, but maybe I'll try it. <laughs> probably a better artist than me, Megan. But yeah, it, it, it's, I find it's probably dyslexia as well. It helps because I'm just like, that kind of helps me kind of figure it out, I guess. I don't know. I'm, just, I'm dyslexic too, so it might be quite useful. Yeah, try it. Give it, give it a go. And well, you've kind of answered it there, but I was just going to say, have you got a place that you'd really like to go and take images, but presumably where there's lots of dart frogs? Yeah, I, do, I really like dart frogs. I've always, you know, I remember being captivated them when I first saw them at Marwell Zoo in Southampton when I was young. And I just think that they're the most kind of beautiful little things. And um, I'd love to go and kind of take some kind of arty, abstract photos of them because I think they look quite art deco. And quite they do. Cool. Is it right that they're, they're poisonous because of the ants they eat? So if you don't feed them ants, they're not poisonous. Is that right? Or? I believe so. I believe there's like, if there's slightly different variations of the dart frog. Okay. And, Kind of slightly depends, but I, I think. Yeah. Uh, I'm not a dart frog expert, but I, I'm going to go and look it up after. Let's just double check. Yeah. I'll just recommend that if people do come across a dart frog, don't pick it up if you think it's not been eaten ants. I don't want to be responsible for dart yeah. frog related uh, incidents if we can help it. <laughs> Stay clear of the dart frogs. <laughs> yeah, definitely. They are awesome little things, though. And I'll kind of end on this then. So, what would you suggest if someone really wants to make a difference and help the environment? Because you obviously do a lot of campaigning, you do a lot of work, whether it's larger environment issues, more local issues. So if someone thinks, I want to try and do something to make a difference, what would you recommend that they can do? 
there's lots of things that people can do on, on very different scales. I mean, you know, some of the small things is just make your immediate environment more wildlife friendly, you know, put a hedgehog highway in, you know, put a, um, a little pond in. When I say a pond, you don't have to go and dig out, you know, a huge area of earth. You can just sink a washing up bowl, make sure you put a little kind of ladder in there so things can get in and out and some stones for hiding and various different things. Plants are good. And just try and make your, you know, garden slightly more wild. And, you know, we've got this idea that everything has to be neat with perfect edges and lawns, which is ultimately just kind of a, a monoculture with not much biodiversity. And so let things go a little bit wild and you'll see the benefits of it. But I'd say, you know, on, on a larger scale, you know, lifestyle choices, are, you know, are, are really important. You know, try and cut down on meat consumption and, um, you know, don't you don't have to do it all together, but maybe one meal. You know, every little step is worth a celebration. Everything's important. You know, cycle on your bike rather than get the car. And and one thing on an even larger scale is, you know, use your voice. Click share on social media. Talk to your friends. You know, get in contact with your local MP. I think mine's, you know, got hundreds of emails from me. <laughs> Probably not a favourite person. Um, but, you know, get in contact and talk about the issues that you care about. You know, contact your ministers get discussing the issues with them because if they don't know that it's an issue then it's not going to change so every person has the power to make a difference we've just got to stand up and use our voices and be unified because together you know that's where the power is no i agree i think there's there's lots of things and it can be a little bit uh doom and gloom sometimes like you said particularly on about the news earlier and there are little you know it's the little things that make the difference at the end of the day and you know whether you think oh there's no point if i'm just one person doing it but it's not going to be just one person at the end of the day. Hopefully, it's going to be lots of people all joining in, and that collectively will will exactly. make change. Or believe that, hopefully. Yeah, and you don't have to be perfect. I think there's this expectation that you have to be, you know, to be eco, you have to do everything, you know, right, and you have to look into everything, research everything, look at the like. No, not at all. You know, you just have to do little steps here and there. Everything is is worth doing, even if you get up that day and you've done one tiny thing different from the previous day the previous month because you have you know thoughts about its environmental impact then that is something that is better and we want to keep moving in that direction so little steps or big steps if you really want should be fantastic but little steps are equally good too yeah i agree i mean i've, I've just gone so i did meatless mondays and now i've gone to two days a week and i'm just kind of steadily increasing it and just see how i go i don't know if i'll go completely but i think i think that's the hard so a lot of people get mixed up sometimes with with the whole uh, vegan thing that even if you just cut it out half the week or, or just a bit it'd still make a massive difference and be surprised the amount of substitutes there's a lot of meals now that i have and i'm like you don't really miss miss the meat no without going without turning this into a cookery podcast but things <laughs> like uh, uh bean fajitas and, and lasagna there's meals like that which taste fantastic without meat and they're cheaper as well which is always handy always useful exactly yeah. and sometimes healthier yeah yeah exactly that's the other thing yeah i've got to think think about that it's been an absolute pleasure having you on megan no thank you so much it's been great to chat i love chatting anything wildlife so it's always really good <laughs> yeah who doesn't love a wildlife waffle exactly wildlife <laughs> waffle that's that's a good term for it <laughs> <laughs> take care thanks bye that was great to hear someone still in their mid-20s fairly young enjoying success in this industry and keeping busy with all those engaging projects i have to admit i was absolutely bricking it asking her about uh, stepping out from Chris Packham's shadow because I don't you know obviously I don't know Megan and often I don't know my guests so I tried to keep the podcast fairly light and not asking too taxing a question I thought well, I really hope that doesn't offend her so I was so relieved when she said that uh, she was okay about it and actually 
said that no one had bothered to ask her that before, so that was pretty good. I was happy about that. Next Tuesday, I speak to the world-renowned herpetologist Mark O'Shea, who some of you might remember from his TV show in the 90s, O'Shea's Big Adventure. Love that as a kid. We'll be talking about what it's like to be bitten by venomous snakes and where his fascination for reptiles started. This has been the Bearded Tits Podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I'll see you next time. Cheers. <laughs>